Philippians chapter 2 this morning, and as you're turning there, let me just uh, embarrass a couple people um, that I'd like to um, point out. One is, uh, well, she, she left. It was Nathan's mom. Is she still in the room? Nathan Schneider's mom. There she is. Now she's standing for you. Anyway, um, she, you're here, and um, just to interview you in front of a couple hundred people, uh, I forget, is it Oregon or Washington? Washington. She is from Washington and here helping out with the family, and we're so glad to have you here this morning. And also, my mother-in-law is here, um, second row right here, and that is Judy's mom here for the month, and we are so pleased to have her as well. So be sure to greet these lovely ladies um, in our midst uh, this morning after the service. Um, Philippians chapter 2 this morning, though. Let me read this beautiful paragraph. This is the sine qua non paragraph of the gospel in the New Testament. This is the gospel paragraph that many believe the church in the early days sang as a hymn that's not necessarily verified, but it's so beautiful and poetic and powerful in terms of gospel expression and truth that why wouldn't the church have sung this um, in their worship? This is gospel clarity at its finest. Philippians 2 Verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a a part two from last week where I began to work through the gospel according to Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is giving us a window into the mind of Jesus Christ himself as he moves from heaven down to earth, taking on humanity as the ultimate slave, fully God, fully man, and then humbles himself in the ignominious death, the lowest point possible, dying as a humble slave on the cross for you and for me. I'm calling this the mind of Christ because we're, we're able to enter into Jesus' mindset, his attitude, his thinking, as he went into a three-level descent on your behalf and mine. Primarily, we're focusing this morning, like we did last week, on the cross, on the cross. And I just wanted to zero in on verse 8, specifically these last phrases in verse 8, where Jesus has said, to be be becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The cross is something that we are familiar with because it has become an iconic symbol in our culture. We see it on churches, like I talked about. People wear it on t-shirts, jewelry, etc. No problem with that in, in one sense, but it can be somewhat of a metaphor, our familiarity with the cross being everywhere. It can be a metaphor for how we superficially become accustomed to thinking that the cross is just a symbol. 
And yet, biblically speaking, when we think in terms of our faith in the gospel, the cross means so much more, or it should be. The cross is a symbol and a sign of our salvation. And last week we talked about how it was through the cross that Jesus was executed and how the cross is a picture of a horrific, gruesome death that he underwent for you and for me. And so there should be some sobriety with the cross. I mean, it was said that there was a missionary in Brazil who was going um, in a bazaar with several booths where they were selling things, and he went from booth to booth, and he came to one booth that had placarded above it, cheap crosses. In other words, crosses for sale, and it sort of rung true in his mind as a metaphor for how people view the cross in a cheap way sometimes instead of a costly way. Thinking about the cross in terms of personal sacrifice for our sins. Uh, this form of crucifixion or crucifying people is, was a means of execution that was thought up by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. And it, it's just a horrible thought to think of someone dying on the cross because once they were nailed to the cross or tied to a cross or skewered through on a post, that was a hopeless state to be in. That person was going to die. It was only for people in Rome who were not Roman citizens. They were for the worst of, of criminals and rebels and anarchists and they would be put on the cross as a warning to all not to cross the Caesar and not to go against the law. And oftentimes, families would be brought before victims on the cross to embarrass them and humiliate them. You think of how Mary was at the feet of Jesus weeping over her son who was dying on the cross. People bleeding out, people defecating themselves, people asphyxiating, suffocating. That's the picture and graphic nature of the cross. But it also becomes something that's beautiful to us because we realize that because we are sinners and because God is holy, that the only way God's justice could be satisfied was by God himself, the Son of God, coming to die in our place as an infinite sacrifice for an infinite penalty that was paid by Jesus Christ, God being sent by God to die for God, to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could go free. That's the cross. If you are discouraged about your salvation, if you're not encouraged in Christ, look to the cross and find the great height and depth of love that was exampled there. For you, if you don't yet know Christ, the solution is found in a Savior who died on the cross, was buried, and rose again to pay for sins. That is the only way that your conscience can be clear. The only way, Hebrews 9 says it, that your conscience can be sprinkled clean is by giving your heart to Christ who died on the cross to cover and atone for your sins cross you can see why Paul said I want to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified he preached Christ and the cross Jesus death on the cross is the pinnacle event in all of redemptive history it is the apex the climax of the gospel story as you would read it 
Genesis to Revelation, the cross. And yet some churches will um, push the gospel, the true gospel aside and make the gospel more about man and felt needs and, and even do away with uh, the holiness and justice of God these days. Some of the liberal churches or even emergent churches say, you know, uh, the cross that happened, but it couldn't have been God's plan because God is a loving father. God who is love never would have sent his son to die in such a horrible way. There's no way that could have happened. And people will talk this way and sort of dismiss the cross. Uh, yeah, it was a passionate event because of sin, but it had nothing to do with the holiness of God and God's ultimate plan. One author put it this way. He said that if you believe the cross was part of God's plan for you, then you see God the Father as getting his pound of flesh against your sin. And, and why would God do that to his son when he calls us to love our enemies and forgive people, why couldn't God just forgive us without that happening? That's sort of a, a skewed line of reasoning in the church today. And we have to battle against that. There's an author who actually calls the cross in that regard cosmic child abuse. Instead of that, we need to regard the cross as our only solution because God is holy and we are sinners deserving eternal hell. And so God sent his son as the greatest expression of love possible so that our infinite cost against an infinite holy God could be satisfied with God pouring out his wrath and retribution on his son in our place so that we could go free. And so that Jesus Christ could reign victorious as the one who died enduring the wrath of God but rose victoriously for our justification so that we are forgiven it's a it's a sobering story but it hits home when we understand that God the father willed the son to do this and Jesus Christ himself obeyed the father's will to do this for you and for me this was God's perfect plan for God so loved the world that God the father sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish eternally, but will have everlasting life. This is the gospel. And what I want to focus on this morning is one key concept in verse 8. This is the big idea of the morning, and that is simply this, that Jesus obeyed the Father when he went to the cross. Obedience. There's a lot we're going to talk about regarding the cross in general. There's a lot of concepts that we're going to cover but where we're really going to focus deeply this morning is in terms of Jesus' volition. His very earthy volition. He's down on earth, fully man, fully God, volitionally willing himself to obey the Father and go to the cross. That's the mind of Christ here that we see a window into from Philippians 2. Let's go there. Let's take this journey again. Where Christ goes from heaven to earth to under the earth. That's the word picture I'm using for him going to the cross. Verse 5, again, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. We can have the mind of Christ on this this morning. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Last week we learned that Jesus 
the scene starts with him in heaven and he chose to descend from heaven to come to earth. In heaven, he is fully God in the form of God. His mode of existence is God. He's God and God's son in heaven. And him being at the height of heaven did not distract him from the mission to obey the Father's will. He didn't grasp or clutch at his God's status in heaven, but released himself as God to come down here on earth. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says that he poured out his soul unto death. It was a decision. It, was a, it says that he did not exploit or take advantage of the fact that he is God in heaven. He didn't grasp at it, but instead, verse 7, he came to earth and emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Emptying here is explained by the next phrase. He emptied himself, not of being God, but he emptied himself by pouring his heart out in service, taking on humanity, becoming a slave. That's what the metaphor for emptying is. It's not that he lost any of his attributes or any of his God status. He's always been fully God to be the infinite sacrifice, but he had to take on humanity so that he could die and so that he could live. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the perfect lamb sacrifice. And he emptied himself, how? By taking on the form of a servant, the his humanity, the end of verse 7, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was born 2,000 years ago as a physical human baby boy. It's important for us to understand this because it leads us right into verse 8 where we have to understand that Jesus had to be fully human for him to die. There are people, especially in more ancient church history times that would just see Jesus as you know a vision of humanity or more of a ghost or a phantom here on earth and he was sort of this ethereal human-like being who was God he's totally God and totally completely human at the same time it's what theologians call the hypostatic union 100% God 100% man so that he could be the savior and we should protect the gospel truth because that is what the Bible teaches. Well, we come to the cross now in verse 8. Uh, the stages here from heaven to earth to what I'm calling under the earth. I'm picking up from verse 10 where he's exalted in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And I'm using under the earth as sort of a reverse metaphor here to say that that's the bottom of the lowest point where Jesus descended in humility to die on the cross. We pictured this gospel story as the divine parabola. Remember that mathematical term for a big U-shape where Christ is ascended high in heaven, descends low, and then comes back up in exaltation, what we'll cover next week. But at this point, he's at the lowest of the low, at the bottom of the descent, where the descent bottoms out in the cross. He could not plunge any lower than dying on the cross. Verse 8, death on a cross. Now, if there's one thing I want you to see and grasp, it's Christ's obedience, but I want you to grasp it in this sense. Christ 
voluntarily went to the cross. It was his choice. Just like it was his choice to come to earth, just like it was his choice to empty himself and take on full humanity, it was his choice to die on the cross. Humility was a choice. Humility was from Jesus' mindset to do it. That's the cross. That's, that's what Paul is putting forth. That is what makes the cross costly. And understanding that Jesus was obeying the Father's will on your behalf is what changes your life and which, which should drum up obedience in your own life and how you live it. Death on the cross. So beginning with verse 8. It says, being found in human form. This is picking up on verse 7. Again, verifying that Jesus was full humanity. It's speaking in terms of the appearance of Christ before the shepherds, before the wise men, before disciples, people that walked with Jesus Christ. Uh, he appeared to them as human. And Paul's saying the reason he appeared to them as human is because Jesus was fully human. He was the carpenter's son, where people were saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth, out of Galilee? I mean, what, what good can come from there? Isn't he just the carpenter's son? Well, they understood, even if they didn't understand he was God, they understood that he was fully man. And that's what Paul is reflecting on. And he's causing in this verse one idea to flow into the next idea, into the next idea. First, you start with Jesus as human, and his humanity leads to humility. The reason Jesus could be humbled to death is because he was human. And it says he was in human form and he humbled himself. And then humility is defined by what Jesus did. Humility is an, is an attitude, but humility is also an attitude that leads to certain actions. And the action that humility leads to is obedience. Obedience to the Father. And then the obedience is defined by him being obedient to the Father, even up to the point of death. And then the words death are back to back in the Greek here. Even up to death, death on the cross. So the death is defined in particular as the most gruesome, horrible, most criminal death execution that anyone could undergo. And Jesus went there. Volitionally, he chose to go there. So this verse just takes us on a journey down to the lowest descent. And I want you to not miss the fact that Jesus chose suffering. He did. Uh, death could not hold Jesus. Jesus is the Lord over death. He's the Lord over this world. He's the, world. He's the Lord over the universe. He's the Lord over all of the great plan. He is the creator. He's not the created. He's not the creation. But Jesus' submission is so profound and so profoundly different than our submission, than our suffering. And we need to grasp that. We need to understand that his humility supersedes anything that we could do. Because Jesus, as creator, was submitting to and humbling himself under the creation. Even under people that the world worshipped. People worshipped Caesar. They worshipped Nero. And he put himself under Caesar to be crucified. It's the depth of humility that is displayed. Uh, one Christian philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, put it this way. He said, Christ humbled himself, not he was humbled. He humbled himself. 
an infinite sublimity of which it must categorically be true that there was none in heaven or on earth or in the abyss that could humble him. Nobody could do that. He humbled himself. It's a qualitative difference between Christ and every other man. Now, we are humbled by circumstances. Suffering comes to you and me, right? Most often, suffering comes um, as a combination of circumstances and even our own bad choices. But that's not the case with Jesus. Jesus came from heaven perfect, took on humanity, never sinned, and then he volitionally humbled himself on the cross. Says it's Soren Kierkegaard goes on, he says, It is absolutely necessary that he himself should assent and confirm that he is willing to submit to that humiliation. It was his consent. Every other Old Testament sacrifice was an unwilling animal that was put on the altar, struggling and wriggling and wanting to escape death, and that unconsenting animal would be slain as a symbol of the ultimate lamb sacrifice that was to come. And Isaiah had it right in Isaiah 53 where he said, This lamb offering did not speak in retort, but willingly, volitionally went to the cross as a lamb to be slaughtered. He didn't push back. Jesus submitted in humility, willingly and delighting in the Father's will to go there for you and for me. Jesus always knew he was going to the cross. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians that talks about how world rulers, they they were confounded by the thought of the cross. It was a mystery to them. People didn't get why Jesus went to the cross. They didn't understand that. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you always see that Jesus is doing his ministry in view of the cross. Remember that place in Scripture that said he set his face like flint toward going to Jerusalem to die on the cross? He always lived in the shadow of the cross. Matthew, just some proportions of how much gospel cross narrative there are. Let me just talk through that. Two-fifths of Matthew is about the cross, is about the Passion Week. Three-fifths of Mark, same thing. One-third of Luke, that's an enormous amount of scripture and narrative about the cross. And one-half of the Gospel of John is talking about the Passion Week and Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The Gospel. The cross. Matthew 1.21, when Jesus is first being introduced by the angel to Joseph regarding his pregnant wife Mary, the angel says, call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Savior, Yeshua from the Old Testament, Joshua, God saves. Translated in the Greek is Jesus, the Savior. It's always been about this. And it's so easy for us to miss the significance and the depth of the cross to the point where it just becomes part of our tradition and part of what we know and part of what we won't deny, but we don't apply it at a depth and at a height where it captivates us to the point where we would actually humble ourselves to other people in day-to-day living. I mean, the whole point of this is the exhortation of Philippians 2, put other people's needs higher than yourself, right? That's hard to do because we're still fleshly people with sin natures and we're fighting against that. Well, what 
breaks through that is gospel meditation, is letting the gospel pierce your heart and crush your pride for a moment where you lift somebody else up above yourself. And you say, that person, you know, their needs, they're going to be more important to me than my own. Even for a moment. It takes the full-on gospel to get you there, doesn't it? It does for me. Philippians 2, understanding the gospel and its significance through understanding the fact that Jesus went there volitionally. He, he willed himself to the cross, following God's will. The cross means a lot of things, and I want to be careful not to just talk about it in a narrow, one-dimensional sense, because the cross is multifaceted. And I read a book on the cross by Leon Morris, The Glory of the Cross, this week. It's a fantastic book. I should say I finished it this week. I've been in it for a couple weeks. Great book on the cross, and it talks about it in a broad way. And there's a temptation sometimes just to say, well, the cross means grace to me. It means love to me. But it means so many things. It's so the point of Scripture, the cross. It means atonement. It means sacrifice. It means the example of suffering to us as a Christian. It means propitiation, that the wrath of God was appeased for us on our behalf. It means love. Greater love has no man than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends. 1 John 4, 7 through 10. Jesus, God is love, and the expression of his love is Christ who is given for us. John 3, 16. It means vindication that Jesus was truly God, very God, and he rose again on the third day. It means justification. It means you are fully righteous. It means that you were bought out of the slave market. You're redeemed. The cross means there was an old covenant, and then, hey, there's a new covenant. And it's not law-keeping. It's Christ kept the law on your behalf so that you could go free. The cross means so much to us. It means peace with God. We're reconciled where we were against God and we've been made right with God. It means that you can be reconciled interracially with every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. The cross is the door for eternal life in heaven forever and ever. The cross is victory over Satan. Think about that. Satan's head is crushed. His fate is doomed. His power and fate is sealed in hell for all of eternity. This is the cross. Jesus, the sin bearer for you and for me. The atoning sacrifice. The covering of all of our sins. And guess what? I'm just scratching the surface of the meaning and significance of the cross. But this morning... Philippians 2, what it is exemplifying to us is the example of Christ as an obedient slave to die on the cross. Obedience. Obedience. We are called, Philippians 1.29, to suffer for Christ. And there's no greater way to obey that calling than to watch Jesus' obedience in suffering. 1 Peter 2, it talks about how Jesus is our example in suffering. The end of 1 Peter 2. We don't have time to go there, but um, example, that word tupos. And it's, it's the idea that if you want to, to suffer for Christ in the right way, you, you look to the cross. You're going through something right now and it's tough and you say, I don't know why this is happening to me. I don't know why this circumstances have turned this way where I feel kind of hopeless. I don't know why I'm being challenged to go there and tell somebody or live the gospel in front of somebody in this way where I know I'm going to be mocked and kind of put down for it. I don't know how I can reconcile that. Well, you got to look to your example. First Peter 2, it says he's 
the tupos, the, it's like type print, you know, he, he's, he's the one that, that you look at, you know, the, the early first grade grammar book, and you just say, as a childlike um, faith, I'm going to look at the cross and put one foot in front of the other and suffer like he did. It reminds me of being in first grade when I think about trying to suffer like Jesus did. I, I was uh, kind of an overwhelmed child in first grade, remembering um, my teacher coming out with the massive... Um, flip chart, you know, with a massive paragraph. And as a first grader, I'm looking at this, and she's saying, you know, you, class. She was kind of a gravelly-voiced lady, you know. Not my favorite teacher in the world. Anyway, she, she just said, you, class, need to copy this paragraph and turn it in. And I remember sitting there thinking, I don't even know how to read, let alone write, you know, words down. But I would write one letter, then another letter, another letter, and become a word. And then words turned into sentences, and sentences turned into paragraphs. And that was the rudimentary teaching. That was the foundation for me to be able to read and to write. Well, that's what 1 Peter 2 is talking about. As children of God, we're called to look at Christ's sufferings and be overwhelmed by that, but then enter into that one letter at a time. In one life example after another, we suffer for Christ as we put one foot in front of the other, and suddenly we're living for Christ and suffering like he did here on earth. Not perfectly like he did, but following Christ's example in obedience. Well, let's look at this more closely. We're going to look at obedience defined. Defining obedience. Obedience, as the screen says, it was learned. Obedience was learned. You say, where do I get that? We're going to look back at verse 8, sort of with fresh eyes here, and look at the phrase... Regarding Christ, he humbled himself by, look at this, becoming obedient. Just stop there. Becoming obedient. How did Christ become obedient? You might say, he grew in obedience? Isn't he perfect? Why, you know, didn't he just come out perfectly obedient? Well, he's fully God, so he's sinless, but he's fully man. And so as a man, he was legitimately a baby who grew up to be a man. And he grew he, he was perfect. He never sinned, but he matured in his humanity. And it's hard for us to get there sometimes in our thinking as we think, you know, how did he do that? How is he fully God and perfect? And yet he grew, as the Bible puts it, Luke 2, in wisdom and in knowledge, in favor with God and in favor with man. He grew. He grew up. At age 12, he didn't tell his parents that he was going to the temple. That wasn't a sin because he's sinless. But he's there, and he's with the teachers, and he's saying, listen, you know, I'm growing. I'm growing here. And it was part of his maturing process as he made real choices. And it was part of his maturing process as he suffered as a man. Hebrews 5.8 puts it this way, and this is, you know, interesting stuff. But Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was learning and struggling and resisting temptation and suffering as the God-man here on earth. And that was all preparation to his ultimate obedience. The word for becoming obedient, the word for becoming is from Greek word genomai. It's a to be um, here, it's a to be participle. It's something that was happening inside of him. It's a middle participle. It's talking about something he was growing through here to become obedient to this point 
Again, Jesus' decision to go to the cross was the ultimate choice. It was the ultimate form of obedience that all of his obedience led up to. It's very significant. His passion in the Garden of Gethsemane was very real passion. Lord, Father, if this cup can pass for me, let it pass. And then he submitted to the Father's will. When he was being taken captive after that prayer by the guard that, that uh, Jesus had to call off Peter from. Peter pulled his sword out you know, to, to cut off the guy's head and got his ear. And Jesus said to him in John 18, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He had come to terms with it at that point. He had prayed through it, sweated great drops of blood, and then come to terms with the fact that he needed to drink that cup of wrath. But that is obedience up to the point of death. He was becoming obedient. He was tried at the beginning of his ministry with the trials of Satan, those three temptations in the wilderness for 40 days, starving himself in humility and dependence upon the Lord. And he, you know, Satan said, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus, seeing through that temptation, he's suffering in that moment, you know, resisting external temptation, saying man shouldn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then Jesus, um, Satan is saying to Jesus, look, throw yourself off. Presume upon God's will. He's going to rescue you. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. Again, quoting Deuteronomy. And then lastly, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kings of, kingdoms of the world. Satan was basically saying to Jesus, look, just take the easy way out. Don't suffer for this. Don't work for this. Just take the kingdoms now. And Jesus is saying, no, be gone, Satan. You worship the Lord God alone. He's quoting scripture. He's obeying the will and the word of God. Watch this. Even as the perfect God-man, he was filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit to fulfill God's will. That's our example. We obey God's will because Jesus did, and he did it perfectly. He became obedient for you and for me. And he was vindicated through all of that obedience. And secondly, it was obedience that meant perseverance. His obedience wasn't short-lived. It was perfectly being fulfilled all the way to the point of the cross. Jesus wasn't a martyr. He was the Savior. He was the Savior by dying on the cross. And he finished the race that was set before him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He went to the cross for you and for me. You can turn over there, Hebrews 12. I want to just point out what was in Jesus' heart that I think is so significant for us to see. Hebrews 12, too, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And these, this phrase always stuns me when I think about how horrible the cross was to him. Even the three hours of wrath that he endured, the wrath of God against sins he did not commit. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why was the cross joyful to him? Well, it wasn't the pain and suffering that was joyful to him. It wasn't the wrath of God that was joyful to him. I don't even think it was the fact that he was saving people that was the joy for him. That could have been part of it. I think it's the fact that he knew he was obeying the Father's will. 
How do you have joy through rough circumstances? It's really one way, and that is to see God as sovereign and in control of your life, and that you have some sense that you are running a race on biblical tracks, obeying the Father's will. That's joy. That was the joy of Jesus Christ as he went to the worst possible death. Joy. John Stott put it this way. He said, this was the mind of Christ. He looked at himself, at his Father, and at us, and for obedience sake and for sinner's sake held nothing back. He he didn't hold anything back whatsoever. Number three, obedience was humiliating and excruciating. The word excruciating comes from the English derivation of crucifixion. Crucifixion gave birth to the word excruciating. It means pain and suffering. And I'm building off of the phrase, even death on a cross. It was the divine scandal. It was something that didn't make sense, doesn't make sense to the world, and yet it is a scandal. People will... um, Make the cross superficial. You've heard of the sort of literary genre um, and use of the Christ figure. You see it in all the stories and novels and movies, you know. Everything from Jean Valjean, you know, from Les Miserables, some movies coming out. And people say, well, that's, you know, the Christ figure to, uh, you know, war movies, the act of valor, the person sacrifices themselves. I mean, that's inspirational to us, right? We get inspired by people sacrificing themselves, but that is incomparably different than the ultimate sacrifice that the God-man made for you and for me. When he died on the cross, he was assuming for himself the curse of our sins. He was assuming your curse onto himself. We're born under the curse of sin. And he became sin on our behalf so that we could have the righteousness of God. Deuteronomy 21 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You know that verse, right? Paul picks that up in Galatians chapter 3.13. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. In the Old Testament law, people would be killed by being hung on a tree. And that death was so grotesque and horrible that to protect the sanctity of the holy land of Israel, the law said that as soon as someone died on that tree, you take them down that same day and you bury them somewhere, specifically, to protect the holiness of the land. That is a lead-in to Christ becoming sin for you and me, becoming a curse for you and me. How bad was it? Well, listen as I read one more. Um, Quote from John Stott. This is one that really grabbed me, so just listen in. With the darkness came silence, for no eye should see and no lips could tell the agony of soul which the spotless Lamb of God endured. The accumulated sins of the whole world and all of history were laid upon him. Voluntarily, he shouldered full responsibility for them. And then in desolate spiritual abandonment, that woeful cry was wrung from his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has the meaning of Christ's submissive will to go to the cross for you and for me, has that sunk in at all a little bit deeper? I hope so. It takes 
the embrace of Christ's humility in your heart for your heart to change and for your life to change. To respond to that humility is the call of the Christian life. You know, some of you might be sitting here struggling, thinking, you know, I don't understand this kind of obedience. And perhaps you don't know Christ yet. And I would call you, I would compel you, I would exhort you if you're a child, a teenager, an adult, a senior. Come to Christ. If you're discouraged, look to the cross. You don't have the assurance of salvation. Look to the grace of the cross. If you don't have a relationship with the Lord, you don't know really what's going to happen to you when you die, look to Jesus Christ. That's all that really matters in this life is becoming his child now before it is too late. The cross, it's the ultimate expression of humility and it is the way for you to be humbled. Repentance is a gift and believing is a gift. Uh, Faith is not a work. It is actually the expression that you can't earn your salvation. Faith is saying only Jesus could earn it for me. Only Jesus could pay the price for my sins. My good cannot outweigh my bad. If I'm trying to do that, if I'm trying to work myself to heaven and believe about myself, trust in myself for heaven, we're doomed. It's only by Christ and Christ alone. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his sacrifice in our place is the only way to be free. You know, one way to put this in perspective uh, is reflecting upon the Passover. Uh, The Old Testament scene where Israel was under the tyranny of Egypt and Pharaoh and, and God was prophesying through Moses that more plagues and more plagues were going to come if, you, if the children of Israel weren't released. And so I'll tell you a little bit of a parable that will lead us up to the cross. And it was interesting to me. It, it's sort of a funny thing where it's two Hebrews talking about the death angel that's about to pass over and slay every firstborn son where the lamb has not been slaughtered above the lintel and, and above the doorpost. You know that story from the Old Testament. Well, you have two Hebrew names, Mr. Jones and Mr. Smith, who are talking to each other. And they're reflecting upon the extraordinary events that were happening in previous weeks. And Mr. Smith asks Mr. Jones and says, Have you sprinkled the blood of a lamb on the doorpost and on the lintel over the entrance to your dwelling? Have you taken care of business? Mr. Jones says, Of course, I've followed Moses' law and instructions exactly. So have I, said Mr. Smith. But Mr. Smith said, I have to admit, I'm very nervous. I mean, there's been a lot of things that have been going on these days with these plagues and, you know, these different judgments. Then some of that has splashed over even into affecting my family as a Hebrew. And I love my boy, little Charlie. What if, what if the death angel passes over and slays him? Um, but the answer from Mr. Jones is, The point of the lamb being slaughtered over your doorpost is that your son Charlie won't die. Well, Mr. Smith was still nervous and kind of worked up about this. And ultimately, Mr. Jones incredulously says, Listen, I love my son just as much as you love yours. And I've obeyed just as you have obeyed. And so then the death angel passes over. And let me ask you a test question from this parable. Which son died? 
Neither. Neither one. You know why? Because the basis of salvation for that son was not the strength of either Mr. Jones or Mr. Smith's faith. It's based on the object of that faith, weak or strong, that the children were saved. And so you might be sitting here with a weak faith, but if you have faith at all in the object of your faith, which is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, guess what? You're saved. But if Christ is not the object of your faith, then you've not yet slaughtered the lamb above your doorpost and you are vulnerable to the death angel. Don't be vulnerable. Don't be vulnerable to eternal hell. Place your faith. Believe. Place your complete reliance on Christ alone for salvation. Look to the cross, my friends. Salvation belongs to the Lord and it's in him alone who died and was buried and rose again. As the men come forward, let's pray and begin to meditate upon the cross as we...